You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, forward, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, so guess what? Once on this island started previews. We're in previews right now. Go to onceonthisisland.com, grab a couple of tickets. We've got that best price guarantee, don't forget. And come to a preview and say hi. I'll be in the back of the house somewhere. Can't wait to hear what you think. Enjoy the show. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective Podcast. I'm Ken Davenport. I'm very excited to have on the podcast today an actor, an award-winning playwright who's had plays performed at the National and all over. He's a director as well, the recently ex-artistic director of Baltimore Center Stage, where he has just been announced that he will be the artistic director of the Young Vic in London. He's also an officer of the Order of the British Empire. I think you're the first one of those to have on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> Please welcome to the podcast, Mr. Kwame Kway Amal. Welcome, Kwame. Thank you. It's it's, it's wonderful to, to talk with you today. Uh, he's coming to us from Skype. If you it sounds a little bit different than the sound. So look, most people that are on my podcast, and frankly, we have NEA surveys that show this data. Most people get involved in the theater because their parents got them involved. But mm-hmm. your story is a little bit different than most. So will you tell everybody how you got involved in the theater? Well, I'll, I'll try the edited version. Otherwise, we'll be here for you know for at least another two days. But quintessentially, my mother wanted me to be a lawyer. I'm the, the the eldest child of an economic migrant. They always want you to be a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor, right? And I started off as a singer songwriter. And then actually, when I finished that, and that didn't quite happen for me in the way that I wanted to, I then went, what could I do now? What? How could I? How can I use the talents that I have to kind of talk about things that matter? And so I kind of 
found myself being an actor and then going into musical theatre and then splitting my time between musical theatre and straight plays. And so that's kind of how I got into theatre. And then I became a writer and then I became a director and then I became an AD. That's the shorter version. So talk to me about the transition from being an actor to a writer, because a bunch of bunch of people that we've had on this podcast have made that transition, but it's a big leap. What made you say, okay, I want to get out from performing in front of everybody and I've got something more to say and I want to put it on paper and have other people say it? I think I, 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 it's always a really good question. And one thinks that one has the answer, but you may not always, right? You may just be making it up. But what I remember most importantly, there was a summer. I, as an actor, I used to work quite well. And there were a group of us, actually many of us who are now working in the States, who worked well. And it was a summer, and I can't quite remember the year, I think it was about 96, where all of us, none of us were working. We were all unemployed. And so we used to meet around a friend called Kay Kazim's house in Notting Hill. And, and we'd all sit there and kind of going, oh, we're not working. And why are we not working? And we always work. And, and actually that summer, the BBC were only doing kind of Jane Austen's and period dramas. And at that time, they didn't integrate them. So it meant that none of us could work in TV and none of us were working in theatre. And so we'd meet every week complaining. I hate complaining. And so I decided at that point that I would start to write, not for me as an actor, but I'd write to tell the stories that that we were saying were not being included in theatre and television. And I would write for the actors that I really enjoyed looking at. And some of those were were actors of colour. And so really, that was the time that I went, I think I'm going to start to write. And then I didn't really start writing a play until 1998, I think it was. I'm glad I could remember that now, actually. When an, a director that I worked with called Andy Hay said, um, what are you doing? And I went, I think I'm going to start writing. And he went, well, if you write a play for theatre, I'll commission. And I went, hey, I'm not one to look at gift horse in the mouth. And so I wrote my first play, which was called A Bitter Her. And that then got produced at the Bristol Ovic and went on to win a couple of awards. And I think it was then that I went, it, it won a thing called the Peggy Ramsey Award. It was about 50,000. And I went, oh, I must be a writer then if I'm winning 50K. And, and that really was the beginning of the transition from um, acting to writing. So I often hear about people like yourselves that have mentors and then they gift them some entry or foray into the other side of the industry. What do you think that director saw in you that said, oh, this guy can can write? He had never read a play of yours before because you hadn't written one. So no. what, what was it that he knew that you were going to be the playwright that you are? Well, I think I, I think what Andy saw was that I had something to say and that I had potentially I had a voice. And I remember Andy saying at the time, and I've, I've, it stuck with me, actually, that um, he would much rather get a very badly structured play that has voice and energy and says something than a well-structured play that says nothing. Because structure, you can work. The voice, you cannot create. And as I have ascended or developed into an AD, I've kept that with me. When I read scripts, I would rather read a script with a voice than a script that's well-structured without. It sounds like this has been with you your whole life. If we rewound this tape, if you will, at the beginning, you said even when you got into acting, it was about stories or something, saying something that matters. Yes. Have you always just been an individual that has been like this? I, I want to say, I'm not going to do no, no, Nanette or anything goes. I want to do pieces that matter. 
I, I, I think so. I think I framed it at the beginning by saying I'm the eldest son of economic migrants. And I think what that means is that I was born into a Britain that was much colder racially, socially, and in class terms than it is now. And so life was relatively hard. It was less hard for me than it was for my parents. And I hope that for my children, it's less hard for them. But it was, you know, there were there were many issues that we had to deal with. And so in, in an odd way, I, I discovered at quite a young age that art was my weapon. I think, as I said, my mother wanted me to be a lawyer, but she didn't want me to be a corporate lawyer. She wanted me to be a lawyer that could look after our community or serve our community. And so once I discovered that art was my way of doing that, I could look at my mother in the eye and say, look, I know I'm I'm doing acting and I know, but but I, I am serving. So serving through art. Has been has, has been right at my, my core. I think from a very young age. Our mothers would have gotten along very well because my mother wanted me to be a lawyer as well. And after nine eleven, she was like, "Oh, this theater thing. Can't you go out there and just pick up law again so you can make a difference in the world?" And I was like, "Mom, I think making people smile and laugh, or teaching, or inspiring—that's that's healing as as well." And I'd like to say to your mother that that not that she was wrong, but that I'm sure she's happy now that you have fulfilled that brief as a producer of making our life just a little bit better. So, and she is, by the way. Thanks, Bob. So t- so when you find an idea that matters, you as a writer, what's, what's your process? How do you, because you, technically you weren't quote unquote trained as a writer. You didn't go to Columbia grad school for dramatic writing. What, what's your first step as a, as a writer when you sit down to write something? Well, there's a couple of things, I, and I have two processes. The first was, you're absolutely right. My first couple of plays, I did not train, but I went to do a, a master's in classical narrative structure. Once I realized after my first play, A Bitter Herb came out and went well, I went, I think I want to do this for the rest of my life, and I think I need some tools. So then I went to, to, to find those tools. It just so happened, actually, that at that time I was an actor on a uh, TV series that was on every Saturday. So it was quite hard, actually, doing my master's while being a kind of regular on television. But I felt the calling that strong. But actually, my process remains the same. An idea lands either through dreamscape or through mediascape. I read something, I hear something. And then I start to think, what does it mean? Why am I fascinated by that story? And how might I encapsulate it within four characters or five characters? What's the theme? What's the political point I wish to make with this? And invariably, I'm a political playwright, so invariably that's what happens. I go, there is something politically I want to say, and how can I humanize that political theory? If I don't wish to humanize it, I'll write an article for The Guardian. But if I want to make it into something that that, that people sit and muse with for two hours and see it made manifest through human flesh, then I need to find the human story. And so I go about finding the character that might best in, in, inhabit this theme or this political point that I wish to. And so really that's my process. And then my attempt is to bury my political point as deeply as I can in, in the story. Invariably, the political point that I wish to make will probably be negated throughout the play because it's not about a soapbox and saying, here's what I want to say. So here, invariably, it will be negated and it will be deeply buried, much like theme. However, if I get it right, the audience will use their intelligence to hook and find that theme. And then the applause at the end should simply be the beginning of the debate 
about the theme that I wish us to talk. So really, that's my process. Yeah, it's such a great point. I had a great playwriting teacher that once used to say to people, your message is showing. Like ah, when it, was, ah. it was just too obvious, whatever the statement that we were trying to make. I that down. I love that. It's just so true. That. You know, the, the greatest theater out there sends a message without sending a message. It's that spoonful of sugar, if you for lack of a better phrase. Absolutely. I love that. Your message is showing, madam. I like that. And do you find it hard to direct work that you did not write? And do writers find it hard to have you as a director knowing the skilled playwright that you are? Well, I, that I don't know if I can answer wholly on their behalf. But what I would say is I love directing work that I've not written. I, I describe myself to myself as a dramaturgical director, which means that I'm, I love working with artists who write in a way that I could not write. If I can write it, I probably don't want to direct it because I'll just write it myself and I'll direct it myself. But I love, I love working with artists like Dominique Morisot. Dominique writes with poetic, muscular energy and a part of her brain that I don't. And so therefore, when I, when we work together, I can look at it and use the dramaturgical part of my mind, not even the writing part of my mind to say, how can we say this? How, how do we say this? Not even better. But how do we say this in another way? Possibly. I, I use Dominique as an example because invariably I'd give Dominique a note when we work together on Detroit 67 or Skeleton Crew. And she'll come back and have rewritten in a way that I did not understand. I didn't. I cannot identify my note. It's just so much better. Whatever it catalyzed in her, it was just a beautiful thing. And my note was simply the catalyst, certainly not the lead. So um, I love writing with other writers. I love, we did Toni Morrison's jazz. I love, I don't write out of that part of my brain. So I love it. And, you know, I, I, I love doing Amadeus. I, I, I love doing the Ibsen that I've just finished doing, Lady from the Sea. So I, I, I love it. I think writers, secure writers, know that I'm not trying to rewrite them. What I'm trying to do is dramaturg it in the best way possible. And then... I think that they trust my aesthetic as a director to say, okay, we know that you can do this. If a writer is not secure enough, then they may feel that I'm, that here's a playwright trying to rewrite my play. I go to a lot of lengths to let them know that that's not the case. If ever I say anything that feels like I'm trying to rewrite their play in the way that I would write the play there to tell me that, and I'll step back and we'll rebuke it and stab it with a big knife. But, but thus far, I think on the whole, most of the writers that work with me, we've had a great time and a great experience because they know that I love being a writer. I love the writer and I know the writer's insecurity because I have them and that they can just go, Hey, you're stepping on my insecurity and I'll go. I get it. One of the many jobs that you have as an artistic director is to choose your season for for your institution. Yeah. How do you find the balance between choosing what the works that you feel are important and that you want to deliver with what your audience and your subscribers may desire, right? It's that fine line because you want to push that boundary. So how do you make those choices? It's a tremendous question. And when I, you know, when I first joined Baltimore Center Stage, I made a classic mistake or the classic mistake of going, well, they chose me for my taste. So it's about my taste, right? That's what I will feed you, my taste. And uh, by the time I got to the end of the first season, I realized actually that, that my taste, even the compromised version of my taste, which would have been one for me, one for you, one for me, two for you, one for me, was actually wrong. And that actually 
The job of an artistic director is to curate an experience, to meet the audience where they are, and then gently lead them, if you can, to possibly to new pastures. But actually meet them where they are. Don't just feed them what they know, but, but meet them there. And so for me, season planning is about that, is about trying to analyze my audience, trying to analyze where they are and trying to give them what I think they want and what they think they want and then give them just a little bit more. We have multiple audiences. So my idea is to always give sections of my audience something that they feel is exactly for them. Those who love musical theater, well, you're going to have that in this season. Those who like the contemporary plays, you're going to have that in this season. Those who like new plays, you're going to have that in this season. And try and find the balance where there's at least three out of my six that you felt I personally programmed for you. And then the others are part of a stretch. What was the biggest surprise to you about being an artistic director that you didn't expect? It's a brilliant question. And the reason it's a brilliant question is because the thing for me that I had no idea walking in was that it's a bloody miracle that a new play gets produced at all. And that anyone who, who had produced my plays, I got down on my hands and knees and I thanked them. And I thanked the art gods. Because actually, it's not about your When I learned what it takes to put a season together, that, that your play may be brilliant, but it just might not fit what we need to do financially, what we need to do thematically, what we need to do in any way, we might not be able to do your play. So it was an act of wonder and, and godliness that a new play got, got my new plays got produced. I have an acting friend who said his father said to him, there are a million reasons why you may not get the part. Just don't let your acting be one of them. And I feel that about playwriting. I say that to playwrights. Just don't let your playwriting or the play be one of them. So that was the biggest thing that I learned. The miracle of everything lining up so that your new play can be produced. I think the other thing I learned was the only other big thing, I not the only other, but the, the big thing is that it looks easy on the outside and it's bloody hard on the end. And no one, and don't do this because you want people to say, well done. You know, there is always going to be someone who's going to say you messed up and you've got to know that that's part of the game. When you came here, what was the biggest difference you noticed between the UK theatre system and the US theatre system? The rehearsal period. We rehearse in the UK invariably from 10 in the morning till 6 every day. And that's standard. And here you get the choice as to whether you can do a straight 6, 12 to 6, or that you can do an eight-hour day. That was fascinating to me. At first, I was like, why would I do a straight six? I, let's do what I'm used to. And then I actually, I'm such a lover of the straight six now, particularly as an AD, because it means I can get into work in the morning at nine and I can work and I can do AD stuff until nine. And then I can finish at six and then I can do more AD stuff. I can actually do two jobs and it fit into a normal theatrical day. And so I think that was a difference. The only other difference was, was, and people often ask me this about the difference between American actors and British actors. And the only thing that I would say, and I think this is slightly changed, is that I found American actors to be so well-mannered during note sessions. I was like, 
people just take the notes and they write them down and, and no one argues with you. And I was really used to the British system, or at least certainly in the companies that I was in, and the director gave you a note, you'd be like, yeah, yeah, I hear that. But, you know, the reason why I did that note was because I was standing there and this didn't come to me in the right way and this, and, and you'd have a 10-minute discussion about the note. And here, everybody just kind of accepted them. It was shocking to my, to me, to my, my whole system went, really? And actually, having said that, though, Directing in Britain over the last few years, I found that the British actor is also now as well behaved. So that, but you know, that was the only the only real difference I found between an American actor and a British actor. Is there anything that you're looking to take back with you from the U.S. system to the U.K. that do you think the U.K. system can learn from us? You know, again, it's something I'm thinking about a lot as I move towards, you know, uh, being the AD at the Young Vic. There is a funk that comes with American kids that I love profoundly, one that I didn't know at home. And, you know, for those who are not familiar with James Brown in, in theatrical terms, there is a... <laughs> there, there is, there is, I love that. <laughs> There is an energy that the American theater has that is both intellectual and visceral that comes with every actor, with every designer, with every director that I've worked with. It's something in the air. And it doesn't mean that the Brits don't, we don't have our own thing and we absolutely do. But there is that dedication to the visceral and the intellectual and the way that I've received it. And it may not be that for anybody else that I hope will live with me for the rest of my life and will infuse the work that I will do curatorially and, and and also generatively, as well as interpretively. So when you were appointed as the AD here in, in Baltimore, yeah. you were the only black male artistic director at a regional theater in this country. That's correct? Well, no, actually, I wasn't there. When I was appointed then, I, what I would say is I was one of the few playwrights, and I certainly was the first black Brit. But um, there were three of us at the time. I wasn't the first. I wasn't the only. I think there was a director at Pasadena Playhouse, and a director at Syracuse. However, now as we stand, Syracuse has transitioned, as has Pasadena. So as it stands right now, I happen to be, I think, and, you know, uh, yeah, I'm probably the only person of color leading a major theater, or certainly an African-American or, or, or a black, a someone of black hue leading. What do you think about that? Well, the reason why it took so long to bloody explain that, to be trying to be as pedantic as I could, is because um, I think that it's painful. And, and, I, I, and I think there is no need for it. And I think it speaks to structural inequality. And I worry about it. And I think it needs to change. And I think we need to look at the structural inequalities that allow boards to think that there isn't a qualified person of color out there to lead their institution. And I think the American theater, really progressive field, knows that it needs to address this because we, we live in a far more, or we want to live in a far more equitable environment than the numbers currently dictate. And if there was one simple thing that all of us could do out there that work in the theater to increase the amount of diversity in the theater, whether it's artistic directors, whether it's writers, whether it's actors, whatever it is, what, what would that be? What can we all do to help make this better? Because I think we all agree, a number of people have been on this podcast and said it, and certainly I agree as well. It's a problem. What can, what can each one of us do? Because I think at times so many people feel they don't know what to do. And then they get in this uncomfortable position of like, oh, I don't want to do it because now I'm afraid of what it may mean if I say this or do this. Or So what would you say to people to make a difference? I, I, I would say let's look at the structural inequality of, of, of gender, the gender imbalance, right? And we look at roughly 70% of, of plays, tickets to plays are bought by women. 
and less than 30% of the plays produced on our stages are, are directed or written by women. And so really, as an AD or as anyone in, 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 in theatre, we go, this is wrong. We know we need to do something about it. Well, the thing to do about it is if you're an AD, seek gender balance in some sort in your season. And if you're a director, the plays that you advocate to do, make sure that there is gender balance in those plays. And the way that you staff your creatives, well, make sure that there's gender balance in the way that you staff your creatives. And before you know it, if we just acknowledge that something is wrong and then go, how do I influence my sphere of influence? Then you go, great, I can do that there. And so what I would say in terms of people of color, I would say we look at the structural inequality and we look and we say, how many directors of color get to direct plays that are not linked to their cultural background? And we go, well, cool. And then the next big classic that's happening at my theater, well, maybe I need to help the infrastructure by making sure that that's a director of color. And maybe that director of color said, well, actually, my sound person that I've been working with for years is someone of color. And maybe they bring them in. And so I think there are ways in which we can just look at our immediate environment and say, how do I diversify it? How do I look at the structural inequalities? How do I identify those? And then I think I know what to do. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And let me just ask you a personal question and how when you realized you were one of the few people of color to be leading a major theater and now may be the only did you did you feel a personal amount of responsibility there? Was did you feel like you had to? Oh, I I, I need to lead this this move. There's a, there's a lot of was there a lot of pressure for you? I would say being born black in Britain has meant that um, I I worry less about the burden of representation and the burden of leadership, and I worry far more about the burden of paranoia. <laughs> and so actually, when I realized this, and and I'm in the same position in Britain right now. I mean, it's just, you know, these are just making figures and facts. And so going right back to my mother and my mother saying that, that your art, you're going to do this art, then your art has to be of service. I don't worry about the responsibility of it. What I do do, though, however, is go, how do I serve the structure? How do I serve and attack any structural inequality that is before me? And so, no, I didn't worry about it. I just did. I arrived at Baltimore Center Stage and there wasn't that much diversity in terms of senior management, in terms of management beneath that. And and now I'll, I'll leave Baltimore with at least 40 percent of our senior managers being color. I'll leave with our next level of managers. There being at least 30 percent there. And, and that's now not to speak about box office and not to speak about our interns. And, and I'm really proud that we just did it. We didn't talk about it. We didn't sell it. We just went out and just said, we didn't even put in a Rooney rule. You know, we just went, let's make our theatre look like a man. And we're succeeding. That's quite an amazing legacy you've left there, for sure. What are you most excited about with, with the new gig at the Young Vic? You want to give us a spoiler alert on what you plan on doing over there? Uh, no. <laughs> but what I am most excited about is going there and learning this new audience. I love audiences. See, we're in arts because we want to talk to audiences and dance with audiences and give them something that they didn't know they wanted and, or give them something that they did know. And so getting to learn and listen to a new audience really excites me. And so really, that's going to be the, the thing that I'm doing right now is just listening, trying to find out where that is, where that sits where they sit, and then try and find the art that speaks to that and to them. 
Okay, my last question, which I feel like I know the answer to, but we're going to ask it anyway because we ask it to everybody on the podcast. It's called my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to pay you a visit and to thank you for your incredible work for wanting to do plays that matter since you were, it sounds like a teenager, and continuing that to this day and what you've done there at Baltimore Center Stage and wants to grant you one wish as a thank you. What's the one thing you wish you could change about theater in general? What's the one thing that makes you mad, angry, that you'd ask this genie to wish away with a snap of a finger? Good. I would want theater to not be seen as the high arts, but the popular arts. That it wouldn't just serve 4%, that it would serve 98% of the country and of the world. And that everybody went to the theater as much as they go to their iPhone when they wake up in the morning. That's a quote right there. I love it. Thank you so much for being here. Best of luck with the new gig over there. I can't wait to see what you do. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Don't forget to grab your tickets for Once on the Silent. Go to onceonthesilent.com or come up to the Circle in the Square box office or get your tickets now for holidays because they are selling fast. We'll see you at the theater. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.